Our scripture reading this afternoon comes from several places, beginning, first of all, in Genesis chapter 17. There are several uh, short readings, and they're all of them in connection with the theme of baptism, and particularly uh, the baptism of infants, the place of children in the church. So Genesis 17, we'll read verses 1 through 8. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God." So far from Genesis 17, let's also turn to Jeremiah chapter 32. Jeremiah 32, we'll read verses 26 through 41. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Therefore thus says the Lord, Behold, I am giving this city into the hands of the Chaldeans, and into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall capture it. The Chaldeans who are fighting against this city shall come and set this city on fire and burn it with the houses on whose roofs offerings have been made to Baal and drink offerings have been poured out to other gods to provoke me to anger. For the children of Israel and the children of Judah have done nothing but evil in my sight from their youth. The children of Israel have done nothing but provoke me to anger by the work of their hands, declares the Lord. This city has aroused my anger and wrath from the day it was built to this day, so that I will remove it from my sight because of all the evil of the children of Israel and the children of Judah that they did to provoke me to anger, their kings and their officials, their priests and their prophets, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They have turned to me their back and not their face. And though I have taught them persistently, they have not listened to receive instruction. They set up their abominations in the house that is called by my name to defile it. They built the high places of Baal in the valley of the son of Hinnom to offer up their sons and daughters to Molech, though I did not command them, nor did it ever enter into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. Now therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city of which you say, it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Behold, 
I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place, and I will make them dwell in safety, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. Let's also turn to the New Testament now, to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2. Acts 2, verses 37 to 41. Now when they, that is the crowds in Jerusalem, heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. And with many other words he bore witness, and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received His word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Finally, one more text. That's from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians 7, we'll read verses 10 through 16. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So far, the reading of God's Word. As we reflect on what we've read, let's sing together from Psalm 127, a psalm that speaks of the home and of children. Uh, We'll sing stanzas 1, 3, and 4.
Every Lord's Day in the afternoon service, we turn to the Heidelberg Catechism, a summary of the Christian faith and the confession of this church. And we find ourselves this afternoon in Lord's Day 27. We're looking at the second part, uh, the last question there in Lord's Day 27, question answer 74. Should infants, too, be baptized? Yes, infants, as well as adults, belong to God's covenant and congregation. Through Christ's blood, the redemption from sin, and the Holy Spirit, who works faith, are promised to them no less than to adults. Therefore, by baptism as sign of the covenant, they must be incorporated into the Christian church and distinguished from the children of unbelievers. This was done in the Old Covenant by circumcision, in place of which baptism was instituted in the New Covenant. So far, the reading of the Catechism. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, this is now our second week looking specifically at the doctrine of baptism, at the sacrament of baptism. And this afternoon, we want to focus particularly on the question of infant baptism. Now, I don't think I need to remind you that this is uh, one of the great debates uh, or issues that divides the Christian church today. Probably most of you would have friends or acquaintances who hold to the Baptist view that only adults, believing adults, are to be baptized. Uh, and those who hold to that view, uh, not surprisingly, find it incomprehensible that we would baptize children, that we would give this sacrament uh, that they regard as belonging only to believers, that we would administer it to children. And there are many Baptists who even see this practice as, as one of the remnants of old Catholicism, old Roman Catholicism, uh, that, that we just haven't yet thrown off. Now, one obstacle as we approach this issue that we should get out of the way uh, is an objection that might come from some camps, which is, why do we even have to talk about this issue, since it is one that divides us? Why can't we just agree to disagree? We've been arguing, you know, about this for 500 years now. Uh, why not just focus on the main things? Well, we should. We should focus on the main things. Uh, but I would say a few things in response to that. Uh, number one, we should heartily and sincerely extend Christian fellowship to all those who bear the marks of true Christians. Uh, dealing with this issue uh, is not saying that those who would disagree with us are therefore no longer true Christians or are somehow second-class Christians. Now, the marks of true Christians, as the Belgic Confession also summarizes them, uh, it says they believe, true Christians, believe in Jesus Christ as the only Savior. They flee from sin and pursue righteousness. They love the true God and their neighbor without turning to the right or the left. They crucify their flesh and its works. Although great weakness remains in them, they fight against it by the Spirit all the days of their life. They appeal constantly to the blood, suffering, death, and obedience of Jesus Christ, in whom they have forgiveness of their sins through faith in Him. Now, we could certainly add other things to, to that summary. It is, after all, just a summary. Uh, but the point is, the reality of disagreement among Christians over various issues does not mean that we cannot regard one another as brothers in Christ, united by faith to the same Christ. Addressing issues, 
working on issues, uh, is, a, uh, is something that we are called to do, as we saw also this morning. That brings me to the, the second point that we should also observe here, which is we are called and commanded, as we saw this morning, to work towards agreement and that unity of mind. That includes unity of doctrine. So if one is asking, well, why do we have to talk about this? Because Scripture teaches us this is something we should work towards, that unity. Now that means when disagreements crop up in the church, uh, we are required to work together, to turn to the Scriptures uh, and, and work towards that being of one mind, even if it does take 500 or more years. And number three, contrary to, to what some might think, this really is an important matter. At first appearance, it might seem like merely a, a debate about uh, this, the, how one church administers the sacrament versus another. Uh, and we might say, well, why is this really such a big deal? But it is much bigger than that. Uh, it has to do with how we view our children. Uh, for example, are our children the children of God or not? Do we raise them as Christians or do we evangelize to them as heathens? That, that's one of the very practical outworkings of this difference. Uh, the, and this is a huge question with very serious uh, implications. Uh, for example, when your children sin uh, and, and you discipline them for that, and then you might sit down with them afterwards, do you pray with your children? Uh, do you teach them to pray to their Father in heaven or not? Uh, do you assure them of God's forgiveness for their sins or not? Uh, Baptists and Reformed believers will answer those questions differently. Uh, there are questions of, uh, also of how we will interpret Scripture, uh, how we understand the covenant, a very big theme in Scripture. Uh, what does the covenant mean? With whom is it made? Another very serious question to which we would give different answers. Uh, so this issue does matter. Uh, it is much bigger than just the surface issue of baptism itself. Uh, and at the same time, it is an issue that should be addressed with humility, with sincerity, and with love. Well, that being said, uh, then we want to begin by remembering the meaning of baptism itself. You can't answer the question, should we baptize infants, unless you remember what does baptism actually signify. Uh, we saw that a couple of weeks ago when we worked through this doctrine. Uh, and we saw that Christ instituted baptism in the name of the Trinity. And we spent some time reflecting on that. Why does Christ do that? Uh, because it signifies an adoption. It is baptism into the name. Uh, so it's adoption by the Father. It is belonging to Christ. And it is being made alive and sanctified by the Spirit. So the question naturally arises then, should such a sacrament be administered to infants? It's a very reasonable question, uh, and we should perhaps begin by acknowledging the arguments raised against uh, baptizing infants. We want to respect those arguments and recognize that there's some weight uh, to them. In the first place, as we've seen, baptism declares that a, a, the person baptized is washed with the blood of Christ. Now, we could argue one can only be washed with the blood of Christ by faith. No one's united to Christ except by faith. This is something we also teach. Well, those who are then opposed to infant baptism would object, 
Well, infants cannot yet have faith, and therefore they shouldn't receive the sacrament. At least we can acknowledge that's, that's a logical argument. You could say the same about uh, baptism into the name of the Spirit. If baptism means that we are made alive by the Spirit, uh, then, then one might rightly ask, is it appropriate to administer that to, to children? Are, are we suggesting that they are already regenerated? Uh, do we baptize them on the presumption that they are already regenerated? Some have argued that. Well, those are good questions and not ones that we can just dismiss offhand. Uh, moreover, those who are opposed to infant baptism will also point to the pattern that you see throughout the New Testament, uh, which is a pattern of one believing and then being baptized. Now, one could mention several examples. Mark 16, verse 16, Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Uh, in Acts 2, Peter says to the crowd, they ask him, Brothers, what shall we do? And he says, Repent and be baptized, where that repenting obviously entails also believing. Uh, Acts 8, the Ethiopian, Ethiopian eunuch uh, asks, uh, Is there anything that prevents me from being baptized? And Philip says to him, If you believe with all your heart, then you may. Uh, one more, Acts 16, Lydia and her household believed and were baptized, it says. And other examples could be given to establish that pattern. Uh, so, the point of this, our Baptist brothers are not, as some have suggested, just refusing to submit to Scripture. Now, on the contrary, their, their disagreement on this issue comes precisely because they want to submit to Scripture. And yet, and yet... We need to recognize this issue is bigger than it first appears. It's bigger than just baptism. You're not going to solve it by simply looking at all the, 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 the passages that refer to baptism. After all, some of those passages don't tell us who was included in that baptism. You think of the number of household baptisms. Uh, about half of the baptisms you read about in Acts are baptisms of households. Uh, and also, these baptisms are coming from a missionary context where you would expect, where you're, you're looking at people coming into the church from outside, where we also, as a Reformed church, would insist those who come into the church from outside must come in by profession of faith uh, before they are baptized. Uh, Furthermore, just as you don't find, Baptists will quickly point out, you don't find any example of, of an infant being baptized in the New Testament. That is true. But you also don't find any example of a child born into the church, raised, and then as an adult, finally being baptized, as they would want to find. To answer this question, then, you need to go beyond just the passages about baptism to examine the, 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 what Scripture teaches us about the place of children within God's covenant and within Christ's church. Now, you want to look at what Scripture uh, promises to parents and what Scripture commands of parents. Now, you want to look at the promises about generations and descendants. Uh, you want to look at what Scripture says about the covenant, who belongs in the covenant, and what is the covenant. Uh, part of the reason this debate has gone on for 500 years is because the issue is bigger than it first appears. There's a lot more involved under the surface issue of baptism. 
If Baptist parents are concluding that their children do not belong to Christ, uh, or they are not training their children to pray to God as Father, uh, or assuring them of God's forgiveness for their sins, well, then it's clear that we're dealing with something much bigger than just baptism itself. That's what we want to recognize. Uh, And the first thing that that we want to then pay attention to as we look to Scripture, is what does Scripture teach us about the place of children in God's covenant and in God's church? What I want to show from Scripture is that children have always belonged to God's covenant, to God's people, and also in the New Testament to Christ's church in every way that their parents also belong. This is true not just Old Testament, it is also true in the New Now, to do that, we want to first define the term that we're using when we speak of the covenant. What do we mean by the covenant? Well, we saw this a couple of weeks ago. Uh, The covenant is shorthand for referring to that formal relationship that God has with his people. Uh, God works by means of covenants, declaring publicly and visibly, these are my people. These are the people to whom I, uh, to, to who belong to me and of whom I am their God. Uh, the best earthly analogy of a, of a covenant is the covenant of marriage. Uh, husband and wife uh, formally, officially belong to one another. They are in covenant, and that's true regardless of whether there is the, the love uh, and affection that belongs to that covenant that they ought to have. Uh, they, may, they may not love one another, and still yet they are married. That's what we're talking about when we speak of the covenant. Who belongs to God? Another covenant here on earth that we see is that of adoption. Uh, again, we have a formal and official uh, relationship that's established where promises are made and, and obligations are also expected. Uh, the adopted child belongs in that family uh, and there will be obligations going both directions. Uh, so also then God has made covenants with his people throughout history. Uh, and in those covenants, God binds himself to his people uh, and, and that results in them having a unique status among all the peoples of the world. Uh, they are God's people. They have promises that belong to that covenant, and they have obligations that stem from that covenant. We read about this in Genesis 17, where God establishes His covenant with Abraham. Uh, In fact, the the formal ceremony uh, takes place a couple of chapters earlier in Genesis 15, uh, and then God elaborates on those promises here in Genesis 17. Uh, And this is particularly relevant for us because here God shows us that these promises belong to Abraham's children. Uh, Genesis 17, verse 7, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Now, do you hear the promise there? God is the God of Abraham's children. And you can observe multiple promises there. There's a promise of land. Uh, there's a promise of children. Uh, but at the heart of it is that promise, I will be your God and you shall be my people. 
Just like in marriage, you make marriage vows and there are a number of different promises being made. But the central one is, I am your husband, you are my wife. That's the the heart of that marriage covenant. So also with God's covenant uh, with his people. Uh, And that that central promise is then carried through throughout history uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, We come to learn as we read the Old Testament what it means for God to be the God of Abraham's children. It means uh, forgiveness of their sins, as God does so time and time again. Uh, It means the Holy Spirit, as God works the Spirit in the hearts of His people uh, time and time again. It means establishing uh, the kingdom of God in their midst, bringing them to obedience, setting them up as a light to all of the nations. Now, all of these promises are part and parcel of God being their God and them being His people. And most importantly for us, then, this promise is not just made to Abraham, uh, but to Abraham's offspring. And even more, it includes uh, the promise of future offspring. Uh, So the children of, of Abraham were not only part of the covenant, uh, but they were also part of the promise of the covenant. And we want to see both, both aspects there. Uh, so the children belong in the covenant. Look at Deuteronomy 12, for example, verse 4. Uh, God says, uh, You shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and to make his habitation there. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and sacrifices, and there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, in all that you undertake in which the Lord your God has blessed you. The whole house is part of God's people. The whole house is expected to act as God's covenant people. Uh, Deuteronomy 29, verse 9, Therefore keep the words of this covenant and do them, that you, may, that you may prosper in all that you do. You are standing today, all of you, before the Lord your God, the heads of your tribes, your elders, your officers, all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, the sojourner who is, who is in your camp, from, from the one who chops your wood to the one who draws your water, so that you all may enter into the sworn covenant of the Lord your God, which the Lord is making with you today, that He may establish you today as His people, that He may be your God as He promised you, as He swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You hear that? Uh, that even, even the little ones are part of, they have entered into that sworn covenant with God. Uh, So the promise was made to Abram and his children and their children after them. uh, And it was to be a a promise that extends throughout their generations with everything that that entails of belonging to God. And you hear that promise repeated again and again. Over and over, God remembers when when Israel disobeys. God remembers the promise he made to Abraham uh, and then extends and applies that promise to his people in the centuries to follow. Uh, So this this is very basic. This was basic to every believer in the Old Testament that God is not just my God. He's the God of my children also. Uh, God is not only committed to me, uh, He is committed to my children. Uh, I do not belong to God merely as an individual. I belong together with my family. 
So that's the first thing we want to see then. The children of God's people belong to God in every way that their parents also did. They're full members of the covenant. They can call on God as their father, as the Lord Jesus also teaches them to do in the Lord's Prayer. It's a very important piece of the puzzle there. Uh, but, but as I mentioned, there's even more that should be said here because uh, not only did the children belong to the covenant, uh, but in fact, the children are part of the promise of the covenant. That's part of God's covenant promise. I will establish your offspring. Uh, the promise is not just that I will adopt the children of Abraham, but that God will also renew the children of Abraham throughout their generations. Uh, you see this as well throughout the, the Old Testament. To give a few examples from the prophets, uh, Jeremiah 32, uh, verses 38 to 40. Uh, God says to, to the prophet Jeremiah, concerning the children of Israel and Judah, he says, They shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. So God's not only including them in the covenant, but the covenant is precisely about these children. Isaiah 59, uh, verse 21, As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord, my spirit that is upon you. And the words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. A promise is made about these children. Uh, just one more. Um, Ezekiel thirty-seven twenty-five. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever, and David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. It's the same promise. You see this in the Psalms uh, as well. Psalm 103, a very well-known psalm to us. The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him and His righteousness to children's children, to those who keep His, prom- uh, his covenant and remember to do His commandments. So understand this then. God's covenant does not only include the children, but indeed uh, the children are part of the promise. Uh, the, 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 the covenant is made expressly concerning them. Uh, God not only promises to adopt them, but He promises to renew them, to put His Spirit upon them. Uh, and this point becomes particularly prominent as the Old Testament draws to a close Uh, Because the great problem, what was the big problem in the Old Testament? Why did that covenant fail? Well, it's because the children kept going astray. Uh, That pattern is just repeated over and over. Uh, One generation believes, the next goes astray. Then God punishes them, brings another generation to believe, and then the next goes astray. God, it it almost seems, cannot keep the children because they just keep going astray. It's basically the story of of judges uh, and, and really the story of the whole Old Testament. And yet, God's promise is that's going to change. It's not going to stay that way forever where the children keep going astray. Uh, The promise is I will put my spirit on them. Uh, The promise is uh, God will restore the children. He will write His law on their hearts, He says in, in Jeremiah. 
That's our Old Testament then. Then you come to the New Testament and you want to approach the New Testament with the eyes and the mindset of a believer who's grown up in the Old Covenant. As we come to the New Testament then, the, the main thing we want to recognize is that this New Covenant is not simply a replacement of the Old. It is a fulfillment of the Old, which means God is keeping the promises He made in the Old Covenant. The Apostle Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20, All the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ. Uh, So we cannot think then of the new covenant as something altogether uh, new, but it is rather the fulfillment of all that was promised in the old. Uh, The old covenant is not God discarding His promises, it's God keeping His promises. Well, with that in mind, then, as we come to the New Testament and and step into the shoes of these first believers, uh, who were, of course, Jews and members of the covenant, uh, we want to ask the question, can we possibly imagine that these Jews who grew up in the covenant with the comfort of knowing that I and my children belong to God, that I and my children call on Him as our Father, uh, can we imagine that they suddenly believed that their children no longer belonged to God, that they were no longer part of God's covenant? You think about it, what kind of fulfillment of the promises is that? Uh, where, where God is saying, before, before your children used to belong to me, uh, before my promises belonged to them, before they could call on me as father, but now they are no longer my children. Now they have to grow up first, and then maybe they can enter the covenant one by one as individuals. Well, that would have been an incomprehensible idea to the first century Christian Uh, That one day the children of believers are counted with God's people, the next suddenly they're not. And even more, what about the promises then that God had made concerning the children? Uh, That he would renew the children and put his spirit on them. What happens to that promise? Uh, One pastor puts it this way, uh, God does not say something like, in the old covenant your descendants were faithless, but now in the new covenant I will sidestep that problem entirely by making your children irrelevant. No, that's not what God did in the new covenant. On the contrary, what we find when we come to the New Testament is that the believers saw in Christ the fulfillment of all the promises of the old for them and for their children. That's why when Peter preached to the Jews gathered in Jerusalem and they say, brothers, what shall we do? He says, repent and believe and be baptized for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Well, we have to hear that with Old Testament ears. They were used to the promises belonging also to their children. They knew that when the Messiah comes, he will restore Israel and he will restore also our children. Uh, It's not a brand new thing then. It's the fulfillment of what they were hoping for. Uh, And this is what we find when we come to the New Testament church. Uh, We find the children are included in the church in every way, just like their adults, uh, just like their parents. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7, the Apostle Paul explicitly says that the children of believing parents are holy to the Lord. Uh, that is because they belong in covenant with the Lord. Holy just means set apart. Uh, they belong to God. 
Uh, the children of believers were also brought to church with their parents. They functioned as part of the congregation, just as they did in the Old Testament. In Acts 21, uh, we read about the day when Paul left the church in Ephesus to carry on his mission work, uh, and he was bidden farewell by the congregation. Uh, and it explicitly mentions there that the children were among those uh, who were gathered there to say farewell to Paul. Uh, there's nowhere that anywhere in the New Testament where it teaches that the children are suddenly excluded from the church or from the covenant. In the letter to the Ephesians, uh, we can take note there as well that that letter is addressed to the church as saints, uh, to the saints who are in Ephesus. Uh, And then towards the end of that letter, Paul explicitly addresses the children. So the children are part of those saints to whom he is writing. Uh, Paul also says to them in that same chapter, uh, he says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. What does that mean? Uh, It means that that they have parents in the Lord. Uh, It means that they, with their parents, together belong to the Lord. Uh, And they're also, in that same context, Paul reminds them of the covenant promises that were theirs, uh, that were given to them already in the Old Testament. Uh, So he quotes the fifth commandment, uh, reminding the children, this is the first first commandment uh, that comes with a promise, a promise that was made in the context of the Old Covenant. Paul doesn't see that as having passed away. Uh, Likewise, also the parents are commanded to do exactly as the parents were commanded in the Old Testament, to raise their children in the fear and instruction of the Lord. What can that mean except that the children still belong to the Lord? Uh, And finally, I want to say just a word about the baptism of households that we do find in the New Testament. Now, Baptists will be quick to point out that uh, it doesn't say that there were infants or young children in these households, and that's true. But what is noteworthy is that just as before, just as in the Old Testament, God continues to work with households. God continues to respect covenants. Uh, Entrance into his covenant is not suddenly limited to individuals, but just as it was before, is, is, is done by households. So we come back to the question then, should children be baptized? Well, to answer that, we can't just look at the different passages about baptism and check whether children are mentioned or not. Instead, we need to ask, what does baptism signify? So what does the promise mean? And then, does that promise apply also to children? So again, baptism, what does it mean? Adoption by the Father, belonging to Christ, redemption in Christ's blood, and renewal by the Spirit. That's what baptism means. So then, Does that promise belong to children? Well, it's very clear those things were extended to the children in the Old Testament. With their parents, they were adopted by God the Father. They were, with their parents, uh, accounted for in the sacrifices which pointed to Christ. Indeed, the the blood of of the sacrifices was even sprinkled upon them uh, when, when they were gathered with their parents. And they are, together with their parents, promised new life by the Spirit. Uh, Nor can we suppose, as some might argue, that, well, well, the children got away with it back then because then it was all by ritual, but now it's by by faith. That's nonsense. 
The Old Testament demanded faith of God's people just as the the New Testament does. Uh, If you read Paul's arguments in Romans 4 and in the book of Galatians, that's the centerpiece of his argument is Abraham and his offspring were saved by faith, not by ritual nor by race. Uh, And yet the children were there. Uh, And there we see the principle that that is at play here. God adopts the children of believers as his own children, and they have the privilege of knowing him as their father as they grow up and have the responsibility to respond in faith in accordance with their ability. That's the principle we're finding. Uh, So by baptizing our children, We do not believe that they are uh, automatically saved regardless of whether they ever believe. That was never true in the Old Testament either. You see uh, many of other examples of of evil men and women who belong to God's covenant, uh, who were were covenant children, but failed to respond in faith and were ultimately condemned. Uh, That is is what Scripture speaks of as covenant breakers. Uh, The New Testament speaks of such individuals as well. Hebrews 6, Hebrews 10 speaks of covenant breakers uh, dealing with that reality. Uh, So covenant membership does not mean salvation apart from faith. It has always demanded faith, Old Testament and new. But it does mean that the children together with their parents belong to God their Father. They carry a special status distinct from the world as holy to God. Uh, As such, we regard them as saved. Uh, And then as those who belong to God, as those who are saved, God expects from them faith in accordance with their ability as they grow up. Uh, In fact, this this membership in God's people is one of God's primary tools and means to bring them to faith. Uh, They don't, unlike the world, they don't come to faith as outsiders. They come to faith as those who have, from infancy, like David says, known God and trusted in him right from his mother's birth. Uh, Just as, uh, again, we might use the analogy of marriage, uh, just as in marriage, husband and wife can learn to love one another precisely because they are married to one another, uh, so also with children in God's covenant. They love him because he is their father. Uh, And just as marriage is designed to honor and to protect and to nurture that love, so also is God's covenant with his children. Uh, They may grow up calling on him as father, knowing their father's love. And that, that, brothers and sisters, is a doctrine that, that is worth fighting for. Amen.